if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. I'll read the entirety of the psalm and then I'll pray and ask the Lord to bless us. Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. and Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, if you do not give us wisdom, then we are fools. If you do not show us the way to go forward, then we will be lost. If you do not give us the light, then we will be stuck in darkness. And so I pray, oh, Lord, that as we've opened up your word, might you illuminate your word by your Holy Spirit. Give us insight. Give us understanding. Give us humility Oh, Lord, that we might receive your word and be doers of your word. Oh, Lord, I pray all this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we are beginning a very short sermon series in the book of Psalms. We're going to be uh, preaching in the weeks that our senior pastor is absent. He's gone this Sunday and He'll be back next Sunday, but then he'll be back, he'll be gone again for three weeks after that on a much-deserved vacation. And in those four weeks, Pastor Wagner and I will be preaching a short sermon series on kingdom psalms or messianic psalms. That is, psalms which teach us and speak of Christ and his glorious kingdom. Now, there is a sense in which all of the psalms speak of Christ They really are his words. They are his songs. However, some will speak with more clarity. Some of them will speak in glorious terms of his future kingdom, the kingdom that he reigns over. Some will promise and foreshadow King Jesus in very specific ways. They promise an eternal kingdom, one ruled by a son of David, the son of God. And as we go through this series... I think you will see several things. You will see Jesus and his kingly rule. You'll see Jesus and his priestly work. You'll see the sufferings of Jesus and the anguish of our suffering Messiah. But most importantly, you will see his glory. Today we come to Psalm 2. And it's a very fitting introduction to a series like this. It's perhaps the most famous of all the messianic psalms. It's 
if you know, quoted extensively in the New Testament. The, the New Testament authors take this psalm and apply it to Christ in a variety of ways, some of which we'll see today. And this psalm really is centered around speaking. I like to say that this psalm is a very loud psalm. It's a booming psalm because in it we find a variety of voices speaking throughout the text. Now, these voices will serve as our outline for today to help us get through the text. And what are they? Well, we see the voice of the world speaking in the first three verses. Then we see the voice of God in verses 4 through 6. Then the voice of the king in verses 7 through 9. And the voice of the psalmist in verses 10 through 12. Let's begin with the voice of the world in verses 1 through 3. It begins with a question, doesn't it? Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples of the world plot in vain? And, and I think the psalmist is speaking broadly here. He's talking about the whole world. All of the leaders. All of the rulers. And alongside them, all of the people in the world. This is very broad. It speaks to everyone. Not just Christians, but to the whole world. And what are they doing? Well, we're told they're raging and they are plotting. Now, these words are very illustrative. If you can imagine, raging is something that is very loud. There's loud frustration. It's noisy and angry. I think you could imagine for yourself a, a room somewhere where there is gathered a bunch of rulers and presidents and kings and uh, all sorts of important people, and they are shouting amongst themselves. And they're beating the table, and they're vying for power, trying to be the loudest voice. But there is an anger, there's a frustration, there's raging, but there's also plotting. And this is a, a very different kind of word. It, it has to do with something that's quiet, almost a quiet whispering, speaking in hushed tones. But they're not sweet things being whispered about. No, it's a plan to attack. It's a threatening plot. Uh, interestingly, this, this word is used to describe the, the growl of a vicious animal. And when a, a dog perhaps growls, snarls at you, that can be more threatening in some sense than even a loud bark. That's what is happening. They're raging and they're plotting. But who is the threat against? Well, look with me at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and against his anointed. Their conspiring is against the Lord himself. He, to them, is their enemy. But it doesn't just stop with the Lord. It is also his anointed one. That is, his chosen one, his Messiah. You might simply say that the psalmist is telling us that the world's voice is set against God and the Messiah. And what do they have to say in all of their raging and plotting? Well, look with me at verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. This language is the language of rule. Bonds and cords is, is imagery to be ruled over by someone else. They're saying we don't want to be ruled by God. They hate his rule. They think his rule is oppressive. 
They don't want him or his law or his rule or his anointed one. No, what is described here really is a coup of cosmic proportion to destroy the king, to overtake his kingdom, to cast him away. Now, what is the psalmist doing here? What's his point? He's describing the world as it truly is, isn't he? He's not describing one particular king or one particular people or one particular place or time. He is describing the general way of the world. That is, the world gathered against and opposed to God and specifically opposed to King Jesus himself. Now, how do I know that? Well, the New Testament authors will help us a lot in this sermon. And here's the first time. In Acts chapter 4, the writer of Acts uses this text, Psalm 2, and he applies it to Herod and to Pontius Pilate, the great rulers who oversaw Jesus' death. That is, when they opposed Christ and when they began to persecute his people, the writer of Acts says they were fulfilling Psalm 2. They were just doing what the world always does. They come against God and his anointed. This is the voice of the world. It's a threatening one. It's hostile. But I think what describes it most is that it's a voice that boasts in self-authority or self-autonomy. It's a voice that seeks to be its own master. Do you see that in the text? They want to cast off God's bonds. This is because sinful man desires in his heart to rule over himself. And this is the reason that there is hostility in the first place. Because God is their greatest threat. Isn't he? Isn't God the greatest threat to our own desire for self-rule? That is because if God is Lord, if he is creator, if he really is the king, then ruling over ourselves is not an option. And yet... How often are we tempted by this kind of thinking? Perhaps not in its most extreme form of of hatred against God, but in subtle ways. When we desire to plan our own way in life, apart from the counsel of God, regardless of what God's word says, how often are we tempted to do that which pleases only ourselves and we know it? Even though we know we ought to be doing that which pleases God, how often are you and I tempted to live how we want? To live how we feel, apart from God's word and truth. Aren't we daily tempted to give in to those sins which we think will satisfy us, even though we know our king hates them? You and I must fight this desire. It's the way of the Christian. It is the fundamental sin that was the sin that Adam and Eve struggled with. They rejected God's law and his commandment in favor of their own way. They rejected his glory in favor of worshiping themselves. This is the way of the world, to have self-rule. But ironically, it's the worst thing we can have. It's, I know, the thing we think we want. And yet it's the most destructive thing for us. Because the reality is, is that we were made by God. And we were made in his image. And you in this room were made to fellowship with God. It's what you were created for. To know him, to love him, to worship him, to enjoy him forever. 
So being under his rule is not slavery the way that the world says it is. Really, it's freedom that we find in Christ. It's what we're made for. He's not an oppressive king. He's not an oppressive ruler. No, he's the only good and true king. I was reminded this week of the words of Christ in Matthew 11. And what does he say? He says, take my yoke upon you and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We've seen the voice of the world. Let's turn to our second point, the voice of God. Take a look with me at verse 4. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. This is the initial response of God to laugh at them, to see from above all the raging and the plotting and, and to be amused by it, to ridicule them, that is to mock, to hold them in derision, it says. In other words, there is a threat that God sees, but he's not threatened by it. There is plotting, but it's plotting in vain. They mean to Forget about God, but God knows that this is not actually possible to cast him away entirely. It's the height of foolishness. I think that's why the, psalm, the psalmist in Psalm 14 says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's the height of foolishness. And so God responds here without fear. He's not afraid of the raging that goes on in the world. He's not cast into disarray or, or worried, but he has an answer, and he will tell them. Look with me at verse 5. It says, Then he will speak to them, and in his wrath, and terrify them in his fury. In other words, God looks at the way of the world, and he has something to say. He's not passive, but rather he confronts the world. He does not leave those of the world to their own devices, but he speaks up and he speaks loudly. And we're told it's the voice of wrath, one of fury. It's really the voice of judgment. Paul talks about this voice of judgment in Romans chapter 1, for example, where he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's word speaks the truth that you and I need to hear, that the world needs to hear. That human sin really does deserve judgment. And that God alone really does have the right of judgment. That God alone has this right because he alone is holy and perfect and without blemish. And he alone is light without darkness. Yet how is God going to execute this judgment? Well, he's going to do it through his chosen king. Look with me at verse 6. This is what God says. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What is God saying? He's saying to the world, while you rage and plot, I'm going to set my king on my holy hill. And, and notice the pronouns there. It's my king. He's my man. He's my chosen anointed. It's my holy hill, he says. He has his chosen figure. Just as David was a man after God's own heart and choosing, so Jesus is God's chosen instrument. And this psalm is telling us something that is so profound. 
and so important that we understand that we must not only obey God, we must obey God's King. We must obey God's Messiah. Really, the truth is, is that if we do not offer obedience to the Son, if we do not honor the King himself, then we're really not honoring God at all. Many today think that a vague belief in God will somehow do them good. That is to say that some perhaps acknowledge the reality of God. They admit he must be there. They, they know they've been created by God. Perhaps they even offer to him some sort of service or work or, or offering of some kind, some religious practice or duty. And they think that that is enough. But the reality is, is that that's not biblical saving faith. We have to acknowledge the king. We have to acknowledge God's son because that's who God placed on the throne. And so I, I have to tell you, if you want to come before this God, then you have to go to Jesus first. If you want to obey and honor God, you're going to have to obey and honor the son. You're going to have to acknowledge him. Do you hear the voice of God? He's saying, look at my holy hill. Look at my son. Look at my king. Go to him. Well, it's fitting now to move to our third point. What is the voice of the king himself? Look with me at verse 7. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me. So once again, we have a new speaker here. And he's going to be identified as the son of God, as the king, the anointed one. And he's come here to tell us the decree of the Lord. And isn't it so fitting that when Jesus comes, he merely gives us the words of his father. He has no message of his own. He has the message given him by the Father. He's here simply to say what the Father has said, what the Lord has given him. And what is this decree? In verse 7, you're my son. Today I have begotten you. And these are famous words. These are well-known words, but it would be helpful for us today to consider what, what exactly do they mean? For they are indeed rich. Well, first, we, we want to affirm and say that Jesus is certainly the eternal Son of God. That is, he relates to the Father as God himself. He is one in the Trinity. He shares the same nature as the Father and as the Holy Spirit. And he is equal in power and equal in glory in every way. This is made more clear in the baptism of Jesus, for example, and in his transfiguration where God declares, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Or when Jesus says in John chapter 15, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Yet the question is, is how is Jesus begotten today? That one might be difficult to wrap our, our minds around, isn't it? What does it mean to say that he is begotten today? Or as some translations say, today I have become your father. What's the meaning of this? And here's where we're going to turn once again to our New Testament authors. Give us the answer. The New Testament authors apply that statement specifically to the resurrection of Jesus. They tell us it applies to his resurrection. Let me give you a few examples and 
Romans chapter 1. Paul's writing his magnum opus. He begins by saying, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Or again in Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching and he says, We bring you the good news that that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son today, I have begotten you. What are the New Testament authors trying to say? That Jesus, when he comes and lives his earthly life, and when he goes to the cross, and then when he rises, there, at that moment of his resurrection, he is declared to be the Son of God. He's declared to be the King, publicly, openly, that no mouth could say otherwise. Nobody could question it. That moment, Jesus is declared to be the King. So in reality, the resurrection to Jesus is also a a kind of coronation ceremony. It's there that Jesus is given his authority and his power. And we see that in our text as well, that he has these things. Look with me at verses 8 and 9 in Psalm 2. Ask of me, says, says the Lord to the anointed, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What's the king saying? He's saying, don't you know that everything's been given to me? Don't you know that the father has given me the gift and that gift is the inheritance of the whole world? All the nations belong to me. All the peoples, they are mine. They are under my authority. All the world belongs to Jesus because he's the king. And we're shown that that's true by the tool he's given. He's given a rod of iron. It's a kingly weapon, but it's also a weapon of judgment, a weapon of power. This is a good reminder for us. We always must remember that our King Jesus is not a weak king. He's not a pushover. He's not without strength or without might. His firmness in his voice This is our king. He's mighty. He's full of power and authority. The nations are his, and he alone holds the weapons of judgment. And that really does mean that one day when he comes back to this earth, he will come in judgment, and all will have to be brought before him. He will judge the living and the dead. And on that day, every knee will bow before King Jesus. That's your king. That's your king, full of power and might. He is strong and mighty and the only judge over this earth. Will you praise him for that? And finally, we see the voice of the psalmist in the final verses. And here the psalmist, he gives something of of concluding remarks, sort of asking the question, now what? What are the nations to do? What must you and I do now that we know Jesus has been declared the king of the world? Well, he gives the answer in verses 10 and 11. He says, now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
if I could give the thrust of it, it's put down your weapons. Raise up the white flag. Surrender. Cease your raging and your plotting. Hear the warning. Fear the Lord. Fear him and rejoice in him. Come before him knowing who he is, that he's the king, but also come with shouts of joy and praise. And in your rejoicing, serve him, we're told. That is, no longer devote your life to self-rule or living by your own standard or living by your own laws or living by your own desires. Now come and submit to the king. Submit to living your life in service to him. This really comes to a head in verse 12. Kiss the son. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Really sets before us the two ways, does it not? Either we kiss the son and we give him his due. We love him and we, we honor him and we fear him and we serve him. Or we continue in our own way. And here we're reminded that that way leads to destruction. It's the way of the world. It's the way of rebellion. This psalm is really a warning to the whole world. It's a warning to us. Our sin really isn't worth it, is it? Living by our own standards really isn't going to cut it. Although we think that Self-rule is freedom. It's really slavery. So come to the king. Come and repent. Come before the true king set there by God himself. And, and also come knowing that he's gracious. He turns no one away. All who come and bow the knee, he receives with grace. Look at the ending of verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. He's saying, here is your refuge. King Jesus is your safety. Here is your house of salvation. You can trust in your king. After all, he came and died for you. And doesn't that change everything? Doesn't that change how we view our submission to the king? For honest, to kiss the sun seems unbearable at times. So... Unpleasant, the idea of submitting to another. Until we see the pierced hands of the king. And it becomes a lot easier to kiss the sun, doesn't it? It seems so unenjoyable. And then we see the son of God broken for us on the cross. And we think, that's, that's a king I can serve. That's a king full of grace. When we see that he was put there as a sacrifice, not just for the sins of others, but your sin. That he came and died so that you may be reconciled to God and to live forever with him. That's love. Deeper than any we could ever imagine. Doesn't that change everything? Yes, your king loves you. He gave himself for you. So come to him. Come to him and kiss the son. Let's pray.